Good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning, and it was a great joy, a greater joy to worship with you this morning. It's an honor to have the opportunity to share God's word with you as well this morning, and I invite you first and foremost to bow our heads together and pray to our Lord for him to speak through this text of Psalm 144. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you this morning, all of us ransomed by your blood, standing in Christ, your Son, your beloved, as your sons and daughters that you have loved from all eternity and into all eternity. Thank you, Lord, for your love, which is without bound for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that this morning we're all gathering and we have breath for however more long, and we can hear from your word, we can see you through your word, we can gather and worship you, we can enjoy you now and forever. Oh Lord, would you please speak through your word and exalt your mighty name, make us show, you, show your face to us this morning. We pray you need to be the one doing it. Not a sermon, not a person, not an ear, but you speaking through your spirit to our spiritual ears. I pray, oh Lord, we pray this morning and be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I invite you to open the word to Psalm 144. Every time in your English Bible you will see Lord in all caps, it usually means that it refers to the name of the Lord in Hebrew, the four letters. But in French, giving you a little taste of uh, Cameroon and, and, and the French language, we've always translated the Lord, all caps, with the eternal one. Um, so I will, be, I will be saying the eternal one and not the Lord. And the reason why is because the four letters of God, uh, of God's own name, really means that being, right? That's how he describes himself to Moses, I am the one who am, right? And so in, in French, we've translated that the eternal one instead of the Lord. Um, so you will hear me saying that. I read verse 1 of David, praise be to the eternal one, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He's my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. Eternal one, what are human beings that you care for them? Mere mortals that you think of them. They're like a breath. Their days are like a fleeting shadow. Part your heavens, O eternal one, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Send forth lightning and scatter the enemy. Shoot your arrows and rout them. Reach down your hand from on high. Deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters, from the hands of foreigners, whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. I will sing a new song to you, my God. On the ten-stringed lyre, I will make music to you, to the one who gives victory to kings, who delivers his servant David from the deadly sword. Deliver me, rescue me from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. Then our sons and their youth will be like well-nurtured plants, and our daughters will be like pillars carved to adorn a palace. Our barns will be filled with every kind of provision. Our sheep will increase by thousands, by tens of thousands in our fields. Our oxen will draw heavy loads. 
there will be no breaching of walls, no going into captivity, no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed is the people of whom this is true. Blessed is the people whose God is the eternal one. This is the word of God. I would like to begin with a story. As some of you may know, and some of you were in the Sunday class this morning, Abby and I went to Cameroon this July. We stayed the entire month. We met a host of very interesting people, including Brian, that you have sent, and Pastor Daniel. But someone that really struck us is Amy. Of course, that's not her real name. To respect her privacy, I've changed her name. Amy is a young Christian Cameroon woman. She's jovial and kind. You'd think that she is having a pretty troubled free life. However, as Abby especially was talking with her, she has anything but only joys in her life. She has a very tough life. Indeed, her mom, who is Christian as well, they're both Christian, has a costly, incurable disease, and Amy has been working very hard to sustain her. Trials of this sort are and would be hard for any Christian, right? An incurable disease, your own mom suffering like that. That said, in Amy's case, this trial is made doubly worse by her unconscious adherence to the prosperity gospel, the wealth and health gospel, uh, false teaching, an unchristian teaching, parading, masquerading as a Christian teaching that says that you need Christ plus health, Christ plus wealth, that if you are not um, comfortable, if you are not healthy, if you are not rich, it must, it must mean that you have either not enough faith or God does not like you. That, that's pretty much their, their, two, their vision of the world. Um, so you need to be healthy, you need to be wealthy, and surely that's, they, they begin to see little by little Christ as a means towards health and as a means towards wealth. Um, and of course, many of them still are, are Christians. Um, the, the preacher is probably not, but, but the people in the pews, they don't know better, and that, that's what they hear. And that's the case of Amy. She loves Christ, and she's also unconsciously poisoned by this false teaching. Amy and her mother are doing everything they can for her to be miraculously healed, um, and yet no healing is in view. As a result, she's beginning to doubt if the eternal one is her God at all, if she's blessed, like our psalm says, to have the eternal one as her God. Surely he has not been a rock or a deliverer, she thinks, my mom is still sick. But I suppose my mother and I are both breaths. What are we? Why would he care? Amy's God looks more and more by the day like the gods of the Greek, capricious and distant. She believes a Christian life must mean, again, living in the blessings of the end of our psalm. That's the Christian life for her. And if she has enough faith or do enough, well, why isn't she receiving? God is then capricious, distant, unknowable, untrustworthy. She will come more and more 
to believe that. I hope she does not. And some, Amy is a Christian, but when my wife talked to her, I'm not sure if she would count herself as blessed every day for having the eternal one as her God. She ignores it, but deceitful enemies have are assailing the Cameroonian church at the moment and have already breached the walls of the Cameroonian church and are feasting on the sheep and introducing false teaching which poisoned their faith. She is one among many whose cries of distress unconsciously break in Cameroon's spiritual atmosphere. Today, we will look at Psalm 144 together and see what the Lord means then for David. We'll look at what it means then, how it can apply to us, and how it can apply to Cameroon as well. The title, the title for today's message is, Blessed is the people whose God is the eternal one, which is the last verse of the psalm. First, it is fitting to wonder what kind of psalm we have here with Psalm 144. Psalm is one book, but it's a book composed of many, many songs. It's like a hymnal, right? And so you have psalms of thanksgiving, uh, psalm uh, that are called royal. Um, and here, that's what we find. We, we find a royal psalm. And a royal psalm is essentially a psalm written by a king, King David. So that's why the first line says, of David. It means it's a royal psalm. And royal psalm, most often than not, more often than not, have related to affairs of the king, right? So war, enemies, etc. So does he mean so so does he mean he has chosen a royal psalm to talk about mission? That's confusing. That's an odd choice. Well I hope to I hope to show you that uh, it can talk about um, mission and the necessity of theological education. This morning I would like us to hear what the Lord communicates to us in his word, again, blessed is the people whose God is the eternal one. And I see three reasons why the people who has the eternal one as their God can consider themselves and should consider themselves to be blessed. One, for he is our rock, even though we are but a breath. That's what we'll see in verses one to four. Two, for he delivers us from deceitful enemies, 5 to 11, and free, for he makes his faithful prosper, 12 to 15. The first part of the psalm is composed of verses 1 to 4. Here we can see that the people who has the eternal one as their God is blessed, for he is their rock. They might be mere breath, the Lord promises nonetheless to be their own personal fortress. Amy doubts that. She does not see God as a firm ground underneath her feet and her mother's feet anymore. She even sees the truth stated in verses 3 and 4 that were a mere breath as something bitter. Why would God care? It weren't just mere breath. So let's look at verses 1 to 4. Let's go to verse one, verses 1 and 2 first. Praise be to the eternal one, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. As I've mentioned, this is a royal psalm, right? That you can hear the language of battle, of war here. 
And even though we have no real ways to know the context of this psalm, uh, when it happened in David's time, we don't really know. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, says that it happened during Goliath's day, but we don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, it seems that it happened at a moment in David's life when he was facing enemies that were way beyond what he, think he thought he could handle. <laughs> and that's what we know. And that's all we need to know. So, and we'll explore the enemies and their threat in verses 5 to 11. So not, not quite right now. What are those enemies? What's here in verses 1 to 4 is David's response to his enemies, to this threat. And his first response is praise. That's what he does, right? Praise be to the eternal one, my rock. In verse 2, he then showers attributes of real... real I'm sorry, reliability. <laughs> That's a hard English word for me. Uh, he showers attributes of reliability and strength unto the Lord. He's my loving God, my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield, in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. He's the warrior God at David's side. He's not a weak God, unable to save and to protect. He's the warrior God of David who is for him. And it's not wishful thinking. It's not a leap of faith, sometimes quite misused uh, expression. David has known this. He has known the Lord to be these things throughout his life, more than anyone, more than anyone as he relied on the Lord and the Lord's strength and has seen the Lord act in those ways. Facing a challenge, David does not look up to his chariots his fortified towns, his well-laid-out plans, his many advisors, he looks up to God. And he praises him. He looks up to his loving and sovereign God. Does this mean that he plans to let God do the work and uh, have a cocktail in Tel Aviv, modern-day Yaffa, on the beach? <laughs> of course not. For he says in verse 1, right after looking up to the Lord as rock, he trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. David knows that he will have to fight. He will have to do something himself. But fight as someone whose very hands and fingers, it's quite emphatic, right? Well, you say hands, why do you need to repeat fingers? It's emphatic. My hands, my fingers, everything are trained and sustained by the Lord. Without him, I can't even pull the string of the, of, the, of the bow. He's the one that needs to do it, to train my fingers to do it. So David acts, but he acts in dependence on the Lord. And David is no stoic. He's no fatalist. After praising the Lord, recognizing his worth as a rock, he is not unmoved. He exclaims rather, Lord, what are human beings that you care for them? Eternal one, what are human beings that you care for them? Mere mortals that you think of them. They're like a breath. They theirs are like a fleeting shadow. Having a right view of how great God is and how greatly he cares for him, David, a mere human, David is moved to thankfulness by realizing how little he and all of humanity is to receive such a great care from a great God. This is no bitter truth for David, like it is for Amy now. 
This is the cause for pure joy and thankfulness. Do you mean to say, if we were to transpose it today, do you mean to say that the one who made thousands of years old galaxies care about me? And many unbelievers use that argument to say they were crazy. Do you mean to say that the one who did that, if he exists, care about me? And he does. He does. That is astounding to David. That is beyond what he can understand. Care for a worm like me, a mere mortal, whose life in the span of time is as short and relatively insignificant as the flip on and off of a light switch when we'll leave this room. Just on, off, gone. That's our life in the span of history. We don't get to change the world <laughs> as much as we would want to, right? Do those great acts. Even the greatest of people, like Julius Caesar or Napoleon, while well, greatest according to the world, are forgotten. Most people, you, you ask people in the streets, do you know who Julius Caesar is? And they'll say, well, it's a salad, right? <laughs> At least in America. Actually, funnily enough, in Belgium, we don't call Caesar salad Caesar. Go figure. <laughs> um, <laughs> On, off, gone. Our days are like a fleeting shadow, a breath, the flipping on and off of a light switch. We're not much, and yet the Lord cares greatly about us. David, David's loving God and our loving God has decided to be a fortress, a stronghold, a deliverer, and a shield for David and Israel. What a grace. What a grace. The great I am cares greatly about the little I am that we are. Beloved, today in the new covenant, you're not facing enemies trying to undo you and take the promised land from you. Very different context. You do not need Christ to be your shield in a literal battle. But, and we'll explore this in verses 5 to 11, you are faced still with tremendous enemies of God's church, of Christ's church, both inside and outside. Outside, parts of your culture, American culture, is raging against you and what you hold dear. It's not very different from David's day in a different way. They wish to take you over. They wish you would leave Christ. As 1 Peter 4.4 4 says, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless while living, and they heap abuse on you. They hope to shame you into leaving Christ. One day, they point to the fact that you are holier than thou. That's an expression I like in English, holier than thou. That you're holier than thou with all your lofty moral principles. They tell you your God is a moral tyrant. He's impossible. Why would you follow him at all? And the other day, very inconsistent, they call you out for not thinking about justice enough, for not being just enough. Your God is unjust. Surely he does not care enough. Look at the world. Come on. They try to heap abuse on you. That's what First Peter says. They will say anything if it can make you shake off of the solid ground that Christ is. They don't use weapons. They don't need that. And inside the universal church of Christ, it's sometimes even worse. The universal church, not just the local church, but sometimes the local church. 
False prophets abound. Their God is their appetites. They seek your approval and or that of the world. They've abandoned their faith. Christ became a distant, faded memory as they drive along. They have moved on, you see. They are showing you the heights and depths of the faith. How you had it wrong this entire time. How there's a new way to live the Christian faith. Well, they always end up preaching Christ plus. Christ plus wealth. Christ plus health. Christ plus Pastor Bob's own view on social justice. Christ plus, Christ plus, Christ plus. Christ is not enough anymore. He's not enough. He's not joy enough for them. So both outside and inside were attacked in a very different way than David's days, in a new covenant way. Beloved, being in this predicament, do not run to your hands and fingers first. Do not even run to your theologically trained minds and hearts. Run to God. Run to God. He is your rock, your fortress, your stronghold, your deliverer, your shield, in whom you can take refuge who will subdue people under you. You might think you're nothing and you're half, half right. You're, you're much in, in, the, in God's eyes that you don't deserve his attention, but the great I am simply cares that greatly about you. Brothers and sisters, blessed is the people whose God is the eternal one for he's our rock, even though we are but breath. Would that you... And Amy in Cameroon and all of Cameroon grasp that reality about our father. Would that she see that he cares about her personally? He does, even though she is but a breath, and she is. However, for Amy and Cameroonians to grasp that, they would need to first realize that deceitful enemies, false teachers, have taken, have taken their hearts and minds captive already. The second part of the psalm is composed of verses 5 to 11. In this section, David reveals to us that deceitful enemies are pounding at his doors. However, instead of being desperate, he knows himself still to be blessed. Indeed, he has the eternal one as his God, like he ends the psalm with. The Lord will deliver him from his deceitful enemies. Amy ignores it. But the cause of our trouble has much more to do with the fact that the deceitful enemies have already broken into our heart. They're already in. Let's look at verses 5 to 11 together. Verses 5 to 11 can be cut into two parts. 5 to 8 and 9 to 11. We won't go verse by verse here, but I'll comment on the two sections as a whole. The first element which jumps to us in these verses is that both sections, 5 to 8, 9 to 11, end with the same call, the same prayer. Namely, deliver me, rescue me from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. David is most likely facing an enemy he knows he cannot win against. His strained hands, fingers, and toes won't do. God alone can win this. Interestingly enough, the enemies are not described by their strength, right? If you're a nation at war, the first thing that comes to your mind is 
well, they're really strong. We ought to be uh, fearful, right, to, to, to fear. That's not what he looks at. He doesn't look at their strength. Either that's not what those enemies were bringing to the table, their strength. Either he was more scared about another thing, which is their mouth full of lies and their deceitful right hand. And so that's what he says. It's not what we would expect in a royal psalm, to be honest. It's quite a striking element here. The enemies are said primarily to be enemies because they are, they are full of lies and deceitful. That's their first characteristic, their first threat. As a result, in verses 5 and 6, he begs the Eternal One to intervene in the strongest language in the Bible. Part your heavens, Eternal One, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Send forth lightning and scatter the enemy. Shoot your arrows and rout them. Reach down your hand from on high. Deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters. Very strong language. David is asking for nothing less but the full theophanic descent of God on this, on this earth as a mighty warrior fighting on Israel's behalf. Afterwards, in verses 9 and 10, before repeating his prayer again, deliver me in verse 11, he promises to the Lord the best of praise to him if he does deliver him. I'll sing a new song to you, he says. Beloved, today in the new covenant, in Christ, again, you do not face literal enemies trying to take any land from you. But you face enemies inside and outside the church trying to break into its walls and your hearts. Do you hear the thumping? Do you hear the nation's rage against God's holy one, Jesus? You can't always hear it with your physical ears, but surely sometimes you can hear it with your spiritual ears. Enemies to your faith are every day encircling you like mighty waters. And in ancient Near East, water was a very threat threatening element. Mighty waters. They're seeking to devour one who is not vigilant, one for, for, uh, who for one second does not look to Christ anymore, like the Israelites were looking to the, 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 the brass serpent, the brass snake. They're looking for one who looks away. Snap him. Here, David specifies that we need to come to God first, again. We need to see him as our rock, even when all that the enemies seem to be doing is lying and being deceitful. Not attacking yet. They're not using their swords yet, just their lies. And lies don't scare us um, as much as we're scared by swords or today perhaps nuclear bombs. And yet, lies is the weapon Satan yielded to plunge us all into sin at the fall. So this is very serious and deadly for David. More deadly than what they can do with their strength. David could say, like we find in the New Testament, they can kill our bodies uh, only with the swords, but with lies they can kill our, they can damn our, our souls forever. Lies is much more important to be worried about. What is your first reaction when you see or hear a false teacher or someone perhaps that says a false teaching when the church is under attack, debates, Again, do not run to the hands of your heart or to the fingers of your mind. Run to God. But unlike verses 1 and 2, 
Do not only pray for God to be your fortress, pray in desperation like David in verses 5 and 6, for God to be your mighty warrior as well. In other words, do not only be on the defensive when you pray, but be on, on the offensive as well in prayer. Pray for him to calm down and shoot his fiery arrows of grace and judgment left and right. His fiery arrows will either melt the enemy's hearts of stone into hearts of flesh who love him and are renewed to see him as he is, beloved and beautiful and worthy of all their praise, or those fiery arrows will ignite their hearts with the unquenchable fire of hell forever. A, a heart that says no to God forever, that says to God, where, that says to God, your will be, your, my will be done and not yours. And God responds, your will be done and not mine indeed. Like C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce. Brothers and sisters, without him, we cannot win anything. The mighty waters of the unbelieving American culture's idols and of false teachers within the church are too great for us. Call in desperation for our mighty warrior God to come, for Christ to come. Jesus alone, as Hebrews 4.12 says, has the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, which exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. That's how you fight false teaching and false teachers. You, you have Christ expose their innermost thoughts and desires and our own innermost thoughts and desires when we begin to slip away from him. Brothers and sisters, blessed is the people whose God is the eternal one. For more than a defensive rock, he also actively delivers us from deceitful enemies. He hears our prayers. Join me in praying for Amy and for anyone in this room, for the bride of Christ in Cameroon, to first realize that deceitful enemies have overtaken some and surely have overtaken Amy and many in Cameroon. The walls fell in Cameroon and in many churches and the deceitful enemies are feasting on the sheep like mercenaries feeding their appetites. May they look up to him after realizing that. May they look up to God with a right view of him, right affections towards him, May they look to God and pray and cry out for him to deliver them from false teachers and false teaching, from those prosperity preachers. Then only will it be well with their souls, like the hymn says. The third and last part of the psalm is composed of verses 12 to 15. David declares here that blessed is the people whose God is the eternal one, for he makes his faithful prosper. That part, of course, Amy loves. That part he loves. She loves. Blessed is the people whose God is the eternal one, for he makes his faithful prosper. However, deceitful enemies, false teachers have made her grab unto this truth in all the wrong ways. So let's look at verses 12 to 15 together. David concludes his psalm with a hopeful vision of what Israel could look like if God, and David believes he will, will be their fortress and deliver them from their deceitful enemies. The image of verses 12 to 15 is that of perfection. It is the good life according to the ancient Near East. Look with me. The greatest, the greatest wealth you could imagine in the ancient Near East is sons, check, 
daughters, check, grain, sheep, and cattle. And the list is strikingly similar to the blessings that Deuteronomy 28.4 promised to a faithful Israel. That a faithful Israel would see those things happening within their lands. The adjectives qualifying these blessings are striking as well. Well-nurtured sons. How does that look like, well-nurtured sons? Perhaps we can have a son coming up and showing us. Well, well-nurtured, what does that mean? Or um, beautiful, pillar-like daughters. Again, not, not, not easy to imagine. But the idea here is that of overabundance, blessings of blessing, filled barns, tens of thousands of sheep, heavy-laden oxen. It can't be better than this, basically. David describes even negatively this future prosperity of the land by saying that there will be no breach of the walls, no going into captivity, and no cry of distress in the streets. In other words, it's perfect. He hopes and describes pure blessedness, pure prosperity. Perhaps some of you at this point say, well, you know, it really is an odd choice of a psalm. <laughs> to, to, to preach about Cameroon, the prosperity gospel. Surely that sounds a little bit like it, don't you think? What is he doing? <laughs> By God's grace, I'm not a deceitful enemy breaching into your walls, <laughs> and I hope to show you, <laughs> and I hope to show you that that's not what God promises to us here in Christ, the new covenant. First, the prosperity preachers get something right, as always with false teaching. False teaching always is a shadow of the truth. It cannot live on its own. It has no being on its own. It's only a shadow of the truth, the light of the truth. What they get right is that God loves us with a crazy love. I've heard that said in America, crazy love. It is. It's a crazy love, crazy love in Christ. And another thing that is true is that material prosperity is not always bad, not in and of itself. It can even be shocking, a sign of favor from the Lord. Sometimes we have an overabundantly generous God. He loves to see us and his church prosper. He does, but in the right ways, in the right ways. So here's what they get wrong. Two critical mistakes that prosperity preachers get wrong. When they, they go, they start from these, which are true, and then they make systems, theological systems, biblical systems, which are blasphemous to the Lord and oppress the sheep. First mistake is that we're not in the old covenant. Why not Israel? <laughs> Why not Israel? We're the spiritual descendants of Abraham through the one spiritual descendants, Christ. Galatians, right? The, the, the promise we inherit through the single descendants of Christ from Abraham is the blessing of having the eternal one as our God. Not the material blessing, not Israel. We're not going to go to Israel and conquer the land. That blessing is not ours. With a better Israel, with the new Jerusalem, it's much better. Better hope. Moreover, prosperity of the people and the land had a missional significance in the old covenant, in context. When Israel was faithful to the Lord, the Lord promised them material blessings indeed, so that all the unbelieving nations around may come and see. This nation whose God is the Lord. What not a nation? The church is not a nation like that. 
In other words, the purpose of material blessing was essentially missional. Within the context of a people of God who had one designated land chosen by God, the land itself chosen by God also. It's not our context in a new covenant under Christ. Material goods cannot play that same role anymore. The church is linked to no specific land, no people, no culture. And when the church does that, we have horrible syncretism, right? In the case of uh, some churches in America, I've heard that they, they see themselves the blessed people of God, the city on the hill, um, and, and they become to talk about themselves as a kind of new Israel, right? And that gets really ugly really fast. That's not the new covenant. That's not being in Christ. The second mistake prosperity preachers make when they use passages like this one, like Psalm 144, is that prosperity does not ultimately matter as much as they think, simply, biblically. All the New Testament. Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 to 13, I read, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know, I'm not just saying it. I know what it is. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. In other words, I can be fully satisfied. I can be fully content. I can be fully and seriously happy whether I'm poor or I'm rich through him. How? How? Because Paul's treasure is not material prosperity. It's Christ. He says in Philippians 3, 7 to 8, just before, but whatever were against to me, material, spiritual, societal, whatever, whatever were against to me, I now consider as loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And the Greek word is harder than that. Hot garbage, perhaps. I don't know if it's... <laughs> do you still say that in America? I'm not sure. Hot garbage. Consider everything hot garbage for the sake of Christ. And beloved, owning the only treasure that matters in this life, the only thing you will, well, the only person you only bring with you in eternity, seeing that treasure rightly, enjoying it rightly, our highest good, the one for whom we were created, our hearts were made for him, put, puts all other processions in perspective. Puts everything in perspective. The question is not anymore, can I be prosperous? Does God want me to be prosperous materially? Maybe, or maybe not. But he surely won't give you prosperity if that, if that drives you away from him. Satan does that. He tried that with Christ in the desert offering Christ all the kingdoms and all the wealth of the world to drive him away from his father. That's what Satan does to give prosperity, to put our eyes away from Christ. In reality, God sometimes permits illness and want so that we may realize our need of him and draw near to him. Prosperity preachers never say that, but he does. We see it all over the Bible because true prosperity, because true blessedness does not consist of material things, but of grasping and beholding more of Christ, giving me more of that treasure. Nothing else satisfies like he does. New how to found is as clear and refreshing. Everything else is a muddy pool that barely reflects him. And that's why we go in these pools, because they're not bad. 
Surely all these things are good earthly pleasures given by our Father above, but they're not what we essentially want. They're not what we ultimately want. They're not what ultimately feeds us. Christ does. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, to remind ourselves of what actually feeds us, what actually makes us live forever. Even food does not do that. Paul knew that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, Luke 12, 15, and that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, 1 Timothy 6, 9-10. All of that is not to say that the Bible preaches a gospel of misery, as some prosperity preachers have coined the terms to mock us. We, we preach a gospel of misery, they say. It preaches the gospel of full satisfaction in Christ. A satisfactory and prosperous spiritual life. So deep that we can be content whatever the material circumstances because we stand in Christ, our treasure. And he does not change. The, the stock market doesn't go up and down for him. Brothers and sisters, blessed is the people whose God is the eternal one. For he makes his faithful prosper spiritually first. Sometimes materially, of course. But never if it draws our affections and minds away from him. Not even a Yoda. Or would you pray with us that Amy may see that. That she may, she may see Christ as a treasured creator, Lord, Savior, and friend. That Christ may come into our heart with the zeal with which he came into his father's temple and just chase away the prosperity preachers that have broken into our heart? Would you pray that Christ would throne supreme in her heart and in the Cameron's church's heart? That she and her mother would see that even in deepest hillness, he really is still a rock and still delivers us from the only enemy that ultimately matters, Satan and sin. Satan and sin, trying to make us fall away from the blessed, true prosperity of eternal life with Christ that she and her mother would see also that although Christ cares about her health and her sufferings, he does, he might even heal her. The only health that ultimately matters is to stand in Christ. Stand healthfully in Christ. In Psalm 144, we have seen that blessed is the people whose God is the eternal one. For he is our rock, even though we are but a breath. Verses 1 to 4. For he delivers us from deceitful enemies. Verses 5 to 11. For he makes his faithful prosper in the right ways. Verses 12 to 15. Today, the Lord reminds us that the one who is blessed, the only one who can be called blessed, is the one whose God is the eternal one. Don't let the culture fool you. When they show you Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or, well, he's dead now. But don't let, don't let them fool you. That's not prosperity. That's misery. That's misery. That's misery. I've, I've heard that Steve Jobs actually was a really depressed person. And that he, he was less and less satisfied as he, as he went on. That's not prosperity. That's misery. You don't want that. If this morning you don't know Christ, that's the true treasure you want. That's what will keep you forever. These things won't. They won't. They're given to you by the Father, but they won't keep you satisfied forever. 
they just won't. Turn away from your sins, from these things which do not satisfy, and come to the true fountain of full satisfaction in Christ, if that's your case this morning. Come to the one who is our treasure. Blessed is the one whose God is the eternal one, the one whose earthly treasures do not stand in his way of enjoyment of Christ, the triune, blessed, blessed, blessed God. Let us pray for the bride of Christ residing in Cameroon and for the bride of Christ residing in America and here in Michigan as well, that it be like the man from Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, 44. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, that in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the prosperity he wanted. He was willing to give everything away for that prosperity. Proclaiming that Christ is such a treasure, that he's a pearl of infinite price, is the reason why Abby and I want to go to Cameroon at all. We believe that God will and uses two means to show this reality of Christ as a supreme treasure to peoples all over the world. The first is the theologically informed preaching and teaching of the Word of God. For that end, we hope to join the work of theological education at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Yaoundé. We hope to teach a future generation of Cameroon pastors who love God and his word and point to his su supremacy in everything. However, like Ken Bugua, a Kenyan, a Kenyan pastor and theologian, says that's not enough. Theological education is in many countries and sometimes bears very little fruits. For the second means that God uses to bring his supremacy over all things, its all-sufficiency is the local church, a healthy local church. Ken Bougouai is right. Theological education alone won't do. The bride of Christ needs to shine brightly and practically in a healthy local church which exemplifies the heights and depths of this Bible-saturated view of Christ and the Christian life. They need to see the freedom and joy there is in knowing Christ and with abounding with that love towards one another. Of course, this passage reminds us that these two means are nothing if God is not our rock and if he's not the one going ahead of the battle, ahead of us. May you know, Faith Church in Linden, may the Cameron Church know especially Bethlehem Yaoundé, may all of the American, church, the American church know as well the joy of knowing Christ as their own treasured Savior and Lord. May they know, may you know, the joy, that joy in God, which is willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of grasping, tasting, beholding more and more of Christ, more and more of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the blessed God who, in whose presence are blessings forevermore. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you after having seen and tasted 
that you are good in your word. In Psalm 144, that we truly can be called blessed because we have you as our, as our God. Because you, the eternal one, the mighty one, the maker of thousands-year-old galaxies have decided to be our God. You came to us in Jesus Christ and you rescued sinful humanity. You took us up in you. We died with you at the cross and we resurrected with you. And what we are is not fully shown yet, but it will be. And we'll fully rise up with you forever and ever. As a kingdom of priests in this new Jerusalem, you tell us about in Revelation. And we'll enjoy you forever. And live in your peaceful, blessed, joyful presence forever. Oh, do we long for this day, O Christ. May you come. Come and come quickly, Lord. We long for you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.